This is Pull Request, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Pull Request is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. Starring two techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, and Tyler Dinner. This week's episode, Modern Mobile Development. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of Pull Request. My name is Eric Newman, and to the left of me is Tyler Dinner this week. How are you, Tyler? I'm well, Eric. How you doing? I am uh, very... I'm, I'm having a migraine right now, Tyler. It's, it's really, really difficult. Is that metaphorical? It's, no, it, it's, it's, it's metaphorical and physical this week. I usually <laughs> complain a lot, as you know. Oh, boy. But this week, uh, you know you know, I'm trying to build a media empire. My company is called Pneumonium. My last name is Newman. If I discovered an element, that's what it would be called. We produce this podcast along with many lovely websites. And we're starting the, our, our venture into – sorry, we're starting to venture into the world of hosting and managed uh, hosting services. And as a result – Uh, Christian and I have been working very hard over the last two weeks on uh, setting up a new, basically a mini cloud for uh, a client of ours. And it's, it's, it is really difficult. And I think I I can't speak for him, but I want to say that maybe both of us underestimated the amount of effort that would go into this. I certainly did. Uh, Well, you're making your own cloud there. That's big. It's a mini cloud. But (laughs) after, I mean... Basically, what's going on is this: we have a client so. who has uh, who has been on the same hosting service since 2004. It's it's uh, hosting.com, not a promotion because they because <laughs> they suck, but it is actually it is actually hosting.com, which is hilarious. And um, that's basically the same as DigitalOcean, right? <laughs> basically, right? <laughs> no, we're moving him to DigitalOcean, which is great. They have them. On, they have him on this pricing model that really is right from 2004. Uh, <laughs> It, he's paying $700 a month for 250 gigs of disk space. That's decent. But 4 gigs of RAM? Ooh, like, he has a very... Outdated. Sh- yeah, ugh, very shallow monthly bandwidth allotment. But a lot of that cost goes to the fact that his server... It, was, it used to be a dedicated server back last decade when that was really a thing but now in the era of the cloud and you know everything is kind of out there and it's in data centers that are cross regions and cross global everything like that the idea of having a dedicated server is a little bit old hat so hosting.com knew that but they didn't bother telling him what happened is they kept him paying the amount of money that it cost for a dedicated server but they moved him to something in the cloud which is virtualized like most things in the cloud yeah, it's like a landlord and an old tenant. They're not going to renovate the apartment that a tenant's been staying in for 15 years. Exactly. And then you go upstairs and you realize that everybody else has new appliances <laughs> yeah. than central air and their floor is level. And you're like, what? I could have had this the whole time for less money? <sighs> I've been had. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, oh, I actually, I turned down the, I was going to play a sound effect. I actually turned down the iPad. Anyway, oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> Which the Price is Right fail, uh, fail sound will basically be... Uh, oh, man, I'm blowing this. It, it, it's very indicative of how this project is going because... So we decided, we pitched uh, my client to move to DigitalOcean. We said that you could, you could get the same quality of service for a significant 20% of the price. And then we'll, Christian and I and the other beautiful people at Pneumonium will help manage 
and do the bit that Hosting.com was doing, but charge you much less. Because in the modern world of DevOps, so many things are automated. You don't really have to have somebody staring at a computer terminal all the time. Sure. So uh, the stack that we're putting together is very, very modern. We moved to DigitalOcean Droplets. DigitalOcean in no way sponsors this podcast, but if they did, please, guys, please, we'll go. We'll do a show at your office. We've been there already. It's great. Anyway. Um, <laughs> what are Droplets, by the way, for our listeners? Droplets on DigitalOcean are just a little it's – a, it's, a, it's a server – it's what they call it's not but it's not a whole server. It's I guess like you could say it's how they brand a slice of a virtual private server, even though I'm sure that's not exactly what it is either. But it's your it's it's as if you have your own server to do stuff with. And this droplet can be organized with other droplets that come out of the cloud. Get it? Like rain ah, droplets? Yeah. Droplet exactly. And then together they can kind of make this rain cloud of sadness that hovers over your project. No, that doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, no, DigitalOcean, we like you. <laughs> yeah, almost. I think the brand. No. Uh, anyway. So, but what's happening is, and I'm learning a lot about DevOps, which I, I needed to, I need to get out of just drawing boxes for a living. I say I'm a full stack developer, but the way that DevOps is going in terms of a sector of the industry is uh, really f- very different from the stuff that I have touched on the back end. And so I'm trying to get my feet wet with that. And it is, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's learning new things when I've been very comfortable with the things that I've been doing. Yeah, and, new and uh, big things. Big things, like Ansible and running. I, I had used Docker before, uh, but, you know, Ansible and Terraform and... Uh, oh, what were the, the Terraform. Other yeah. Ah, uh, there was, oh, Elk stories. and uh, uh, Elasticsearch. I, I'd, I'd use, I tried to use Elasticsearch for where am I, but I'd never used it properly until now. So. It never works 100%. Even if it's working, sometimes it, like, I, I've had plenty of instances where it tells me that it failed to work when I started it up, and it works just fine. You know, that was the problem that I had with using it on Where Am I? And even, like, spending a whole weekend with Christian trying to figure it out, we couldn't. So <laughs> It's like, whatever. It's my development yeah, environment. That's how it works. <laughs> like I said, the, you know, with Where Am I? And by the way, go to whereamI.nyc and uh, shall we say... A naval location service is on your mobile device to find the closest neighborhood borough and three subway stops to you wherever you are. But, you know, if you do that... Um, we tried using Elasticsearch and didn't work. And then in an afternoon, I wrote it in a lamp stack. So, yeah. do it whatever. works and do it gets it done fast. Exactly. And the other thing is, uh, we you won't. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, never mind. I'm, I'm too scatterbrained right now. Sell it because, and then let the investors put together a team that can write it in the brand new hottest thing. <laughs> exactly. MVP doesn't necessarily have to be the best. It just has to get out there. No, exactly. Get it done, show people what you want to do, and then you start forming your ideas and you, uh, you understand what the users want from there. And then you rebuild it in a fancy new thing. That's true. But the problem is is that the pacing as startups go, you get to MVP and then you're like, okay, we still have no time to do all of this work. What do we do? <laughs> then you start just hacking this functionality onto the MVP. And then this rewrite never is just is perpetually going to happen. It's like chasing the moon. Well, you want to do it. Sometimes like, you, you hook it up with something pretty, you know, like some nice microservices around it to like do the extra new stuff. And then you still have that ugly core in the middle. And eventually, eventually that gets gutted out. Eventually, but that event's a very, very big eventually. And since we don't have any GitHub issues this week, since Christian isn't here, uh, we we don't have people clamoring for rewrites of these giant frameworks that have essentially happened for that reason. Uh, but we do have, instead of that, and I'll just hijack the jingle, we have our plus one 
of the week. Our pull request plus ones are where we send out well wishes and acknowledgments of awesomeness to other people and other organizations in technology. Our first plus one of the week is to Jeff Bezos and Amazon for purchasing Whole Foods. Continuing the wave of gentrification, Amazon and Whole Foods are combining. So now you can have your food prime delivered. Actually, that already exists with Prime Pantry. Uh, so I just want a, sm- a drone to bring me a smoothie in the summer. Oh, there you go. No, but yeah. then it's not going to be cold because it has to fly higher, closer it's to the sun. It's going to bring in a little refrigerated box. Oh. A little insulated thing. Duh. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you know You're what? Right. Even, no. better, even better, it floats, so it just drops it in the pool next to me. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you that's, go. That's why I got the Samsung S7, right? The thing's supposed to be waterproof. Isn't that the one that also explodes? No, that is the Note 7. And you have the, the S series for that. Yeah, the S8 just came out. It's the one you're seeing pictures of everywhere in advertisements, especially with the big whale. It's got a giant screen. Well, uh, that's the big whale. Sorry. Uh, well, I'm sure they're doing it to uh, beat out Apple's iPhone 8. But Amazon is buying Whole Foods on the cheap. They bought it for $13.7 billion. But the e-commerce giant known for its discount is getting a pretty significant discount of its own on the healthy grocery store chain. On the surface, the deal, Amazon's biggest acquisition in its 21-year history, doesn't exactly look cheap. It spent $42 a share for Whole Foods, about 27% more than what the stock was rated for the Tuesday, last week, I think it was, before they bought it. Uh, Amazon's also paying a 15% premium above what rival supermarket Albertsons reportedly offered to pay. Yeah, Albertsons buying Whole Foods? How about the other way around? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Albertsons. Where I think we, of if I want bad produce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bad produce and just a very out-of-date everything. It could uh, ruin it. And I'm sure someone at Albertsons is going, you know, we could save Whole Foods a lot of money if we uh, just took out all the extra BS that they do, which is actually the reason why people go to Whole Foods and not to Albertsons. Uh, and they'd be like Columbia Music Records buying Spotify. Oh, I was going to, yeah. Uh, um, it would be like, no, it would be like Tower Records buying Spotify. <laughs> Because uh, Albertsons is about to go out of business anyway. Uh, I don't even know how they have enough money to buy Whole Foods. That's another story. Amazon, <laughs> right, right? Where do they have that money? When was the last time you saw an Albertsons? Oh, God. Do when they, I was somewhere I didn't want to be. Do they exist in California? Ooh, don't think so. There were a couple in South Florida, but There's I don't like think they exist anymore. Hmm. Anyway. Um... Amazon's paying a 15% premium of what rival supermarket company Albertsons reportedly offered to pay to acquire Whole Foods less than two months ago. Uh, that would have paid about thirty six fifty a share. But considering that, uh, considering that, well, sorry, I'm jumping ahead in the numbers. And also, I should mention the tool that I was using to annotate web pages, so I don't read all of it, isn't working today. So I'm trying to skim through stuff that, like, I know I highlighted, but it's not there because the extension isn't working. That specific tool is not one of our plus ones of the week. No. I don't even know what what the name is, but I just... (laughs) It shall not be named. Oh, man. Okay. (laughs) Um, Whole Foods stock went up last week, but I think it also went down right before the purchase. Amazon's stock... Oh, so... uh, Where am I going? Uh, Blah, blah, blah. Oh, uh, but Amazon's stock soared after purchasing it, meaning that they basically bought Whole Foods for free. Which is, I, that is one of the best types of business deals. I mean, people hate capitalism, whatever. But this is one of those times where capitalism is cool and it does, nobody gets hurt, I don't think. 
Sure. Um, yeah, and and someone else, uh, another article pointed out something interesting was was what they bought beyond just the grocery store. Wait. Um, well, the thing is, is that well, what did they buy? Actually, um, well, just the grocery stores themselves have, you know, all these cold containers and stuff in these sporadic locations throughout the country. And Amazon's a big shipping thing, so oh. they can mix other stuff with their inventory. Diversify, yeah. Interesting. That's true. I didn't know. I, I didn't even think about the Whole Foods logistics arm. But yeah, and there and Whole Foods was getting into delivery uh, and other things that Amazon also was in, and so I think it makes sense. The problem think about though, shipping for them too, if they wanted to, they could really ship super precious things with drones and get them like get things super fresh, fast to their grocery stores. But Tyler, do you want the CIA knowing what you buy at Whole Foods? Don't they already? You know that Jeff Bezos and the CIA, we reported on, a, on an older pull request, a pull request in the past, uh, that they have a private intelligence cloud, and now Jeff Bezos' other arm goes out to Whole Foods. There's got to be a way that this information travels through Jeff Bezos' body from Whole Foods into the CIA. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how this doesn't. And then somehow it makes its way to your health insurance, and then they'll say, oh, you know, you've been eating too much of that Whole Foods pizza. How about you... Uh, You'll take a little break there. Well, we have laws against that that the health insurance agency can't see that. But what? I don't think so. We don't. I don't. I think that no. I think that once the data well, actually, it all boils yeah, down to a to transaction, they can buy it now. That I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty they sure. Can. I don't know if there's a marketplace, but it all boils it's down to this one sleazy transaction somewhere. Anyway, yeah. That's uh, that's our first plus one ever. Our second. Plus one of the week goes to uh, it's a minus one, Tyler. No, it goes to the gaming community. It goes to the gaming community. Why is that? Because the gaming community did not take any crap this week when Bethesda came out with a pretty weak show and a very greedy show of um, new announcements. Okay. Uh, Go on. No, 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 sorry. First, I'm not a gamer. I really am not a part of gaming culture. I only play, like, three video games in real life. And I am completely alien from a lot of the stuff that was going on in E3. And I, But I also know that basically every other tech podcast has something to say about it. So I'll say this. If you want to hear more about E3, listen to them. But if you want to hear cooler <laughs> stuff, listen to us. Because I don't give it. Anyway, um, okay, so Bethesda makes... What's a popular game that I so, might have heard of as a general that they make? Up. Um, I'm also not a, a huge gamer, but I grew up gaming, um, and I happened to have played a Bethesda game. Uh, the Fallout series is made by Bethesda. Fallout, I've heard They're of that. Okay. Responsible for them and Skyrim, two of the biggest, most uh, cult-following games ever. Um, big open-world uh, exploration kind of things, and uh, and they've got really bad at doing. A, um, oh, and uh, and uh, this this is really hot from uh, Reddit. I don't really like follow the gaming community so much, but just from following the front page of Reddit, it just it blew up. That was about half of it was was just tearing into Bethesda. Um, what were people saying? They went after the um, just, just greedy gaming. Uh, a lot of downloadable content. A lot of like, oh, buy this level and then buy this package and buy this package and get more worlds. And like, oh, you don't. It, it was. Just, there was crab armor that they, that was introduced recently, and it was just a laughing stock. Like, this is a crab who already has armor, and now like, I get to buy a shield to put on his chest. Um, it, was, it was one of the most common memes, and, and basically half the front page of Reddit was just like, come on, guys, don't let's not mess around here. Stop trying to be greedy. Stop trying to take our money. Like, we already it, give you tons of it. Well, how much—I mean, that model, though, isn't new. So is it that people are protesting— 
uh, heavy uh, downloadable content after you spend money for a game, then everything you want to do also costs money. So it's like nickel and diming you. Is that the problem? Well, it's more like th- this model has become newer with uh, with the modern systems. Back in the, even PlayStation 2 and 3, when we started to, get to connect to the internet, they weren't trying to get 20 to 30 to 50, 60 extra dollars out of you after you already bought a $60 game. And right. now they're trying to do that. They're, they're like making... The incre- they're making the games incrementally. It seems like um, to a certain point. So it's almost like it's almost like what would happen if we didn't have net neutrality with the internet. It's uh, we have to pay more to get everything. Well, I mean, it's I, I don't like the fact that if you spend a lot of money, and I would consider spending sixty dollars on a game a lot of money, uh, I, even though I know it's not, but it is. Um, I, I, I would expect after spending sixty dollars that I don't, I don't immediately get inundated to, with calls to action to. Uh, buy more things and spend more money. What did I just pay for? How much of the gameplay? Can, first, can do you know if you can play any of these games without buying any of the downloadable content? Oh, surely you can. Can you beat them? Uh, I mean, there's there's tons of more missions and stuff with extra stuff. So is it just expansion packs? Because expansion packs have existed for a long time. The one uh, game I play, City Skylines, has paid downloadable content, but I don't need my fake city to snow. I'm not going to buy that. Um, I'm not enough on the gaming community to go into details of all the speculations. I, I've already given all the examples I have, but I just know that it was unanimous. That gotcha. They're starting to treat people. Yeah, I, I haven't had time to play all these new games. Gotcha. Do you like the worst part of Fallout 4? Well, there's more of it. Do you like the worst part of Doom? Well, there's more of it. Do you like the? Do you like Hearthstone, but don't feel like you're striking enough? Uh, no, sinking enough time and money into it? Here's more of that. Still not satisfied with how much time you can waste on a mobile game? Here's more of it. Do you want to play Skyrim again? <laughs> That's on Reddit from Lyle McDouchebag. Oh, and Wolfenstein <laughs> 2 looks pretty cool, I guess. Um, they are going to put Fallout on VR. I'm very excited for that. So interesting. Yeah, for that. But have you... Uh, you work at a VR company. Have you? Do you guys have any VR games? Uh, we have the Rick and Morty game. Total you have a Rick and Morty VR game? Yes, we do. Wow. Oh, it's uh, pretty awesome. It's on the HTC Vive. Um, you get to hang out in Rick's garage, and you act as a clone of Morty. And it's kind of like a... I think they used a lot of the gaming engine from Job Simulator, but it's mm. all Rick and Morty'd out, and it's pretty damn fun. Well, I realized something else as I was going to exclaim with happiness that there's a Rick and Morty a VR game on Little Star. It's the fact that... Uh, our studio audience has been sitting in their Tupperware container for two weeks, and I haven't let them out. Hey, guys, how's it going? <laughs> I know you must be uh, very happy to stretch your legs. I'm really sorry I kept you in there for so long, but we had a lot of work going on. Uh, sorry about that, Tyler. They, uh, I heard the rattling no behind worries. me and had to open, open the container. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, not to okay. get their hopes down, uh, but there is uh, the Rick and Morty game is not on Little Star. Um, it's we do have it at Little Star as a company personally, but that's not to say there's not tons of great content at Little Star, uh, which is a premium VR content um, experience platform. So go ahead and check that out if you're yeah. into VR. Cool. All right. Um, well, that was our plus ones for the week. And uh, now let's go back to what we didn't actually think was going to become a recurring segment, but it is because UK politics is heating up. Uh, let's hear it from our news department. Melmania presents News to Use. Theresa May continues her march to modern the internet. And that's it, because she didn't really win a mandate with her last election. So 
I don't know exactly what happens as an Anglo, even though I'm a self-described Anglophile, I don't exactly know what happens in the world of coalition governments and how that has to work. I tried reading it, or reading up on it, and it seems like Miss May can stay in power until she decides to resign. <laughs> Their government's funny that way. I, you know, it's funny, though, because we, our government was created specifically to not be as kind of old and pompous as theirs. But I think that with the way that everything's going on, it looks like ours is the one with the most rules and the most amount of formality these days. Their government builds in time for the minority to yell and chew out the majority or whoever Which is power. great. It's hilarious. It's great. Man, if our Congress <laughs> acted like the House of Commons... I mean, I don't even care if they're all drunk. That would be so much more entertaining, and It'd people be would get their. If they were drunk. It'd be much better if they were drunk. And I'm certain, I mean, some of them certainly are, Nancy Pelosi. But uh, <laughs> some of them certainly are. But it's not if they were just you know if they were transparent about it and they could have they turn uh, you know uh, House of Representatives into a uh, a bar fight that might actually make some progress. Oh my God! If they gave them all stools to hit each other with too. Oh, well, no, uh, physical contact is a little much. Come on, bar stools. Posturing though? is a uh, no. So <laughs> I don't e- everything in the bar fight. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't exactly know. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, never mind. I don't exactly know uh, how. Like I said, how. Uh, Something just popped up here on my screen. Uh, I don't exactly know how uh, England slash the UK are going to continue, but uh, it looks like that there may have to be some kind of coalition government. I don't know if that means that Theresa May still can be the prime minister, but given the accent that I used to speak, it makes sense that I don't exactly know everything about British politics. (laughs) So, um, yes, that wasn't the actual news story. Uh, for this week. The actual news story for this week was something from last week, actually, since we missed last week. Uh, from Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, they uh, introduced a completely revamped podcasting app for iOS 11 that has major ramifications for both podcast producers like us and podcast consumers like you. Let's hear it from our news department. No money on presents again. News to you. San Jose, California. Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, or WWDC, has debuted a major update to Apple's podcasting platform. Apple's stock podcasting app will be massively overhauled with the next version of iOS. Apple's mobile operating system, including extensions of Apple's iTunes namespace to enhance how podcasts are produced and consumed. Podcasters will soon be able to group episodes into seasons as well as annotate each episode to describe whether it's new, bonus content, or a teaser. Apple also promises to start offering intra-episode podcast analytics, allowing producers to see exactly which pieces of show listeners like or don't. Hopefully they also fix the... Hopefully they also fix the podcasting app draining the hell out of your battery or consuming too much mobile data. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least know the world still turns and the truth marches on. That's why this has been News to You. Brought to you by Pneumonia. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be great for us. I think it's going to be great. Because I think we, it might help podcast producers make some of that internet money. Mm, I think it's actually going to prevent podcast producers from making some internet money, unfortunately. Ooh. 
because it would be so easy. They could just say, "Hey, you want to add a little advertisement?" Thing? No, it was easy. Fifty second ad there. It was really easy until we started doing a podcast. And then as soon as we started doing a podcast, it immediately became much harder because people were really starting to pry into advertising numbers. There's a big lie that's going on in the, in the world of digital advertising. And it is the fact that the numbers aren't actually true. And you have to present some kind of nice figure to the advertisers so they will want to spend money on your show. But... How do you really know how many unique people are listening to your show? You don't. You don't. If, how do you know if me on a phone downloading it over LTE and then I go home and download it again on Wi-Fi on a computer, how do you know that does two completely different IP addresses, user agents, everything, how do you know that that's not the same person? It could be my grandma going around to at Best Buy on every different computer downloading it. There are technologies that exist that do analytics, that do tracking, and, and will help give you the dashboard that you need to show the advertisers that you have the listeners to warrant a podcast. But that isn't really based on science. It's just kind of based on some weird counting algorithm that, kind, that differs a lot between vendors. So Apple's in-app, and the only way that you can really get real analytics is if you control the player, which Apple does. And I believe it's some, st- uh, it's some statistic that sounds made up, like 90% of all podcasts are downloaded using Apple's podcasting app. And wow. uh, because they control the player, they can send all the signals they need to whoever they want to figure out who's downloading what. So the intra-episode analytics will be great because it'll also show us, for, for instance, what segments work or don't. If people fast forward or people do, you know, people seek or whatever past some bad episode, uh, bad segments of the show, then we'll people find out and we'll retool it. Every time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, ironically, they might, we might find out that they tune out during the newsreel section of the, of the show, which means that uh, they won't hear me saying this. Oh, well. <laughs> so, but uh, no, it is, it is very interesting. I have not put iOS 11 on my phone yet because as what usually happens with Apple updates, something else goes wrong. They say whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. That's also true on the phone, and in a bad way. Whenever Apple <laughs> gives you something, they take something away, and uh, that's usually battery life. So, I'm always uh, interested to see the new look, though, on iOS updates. Yeah, but you know, since Johnny Ives, Sir Johnny, was made the uh, head of user interface development, or all interface development, uh, the, uh, I don't know, the UI on OS X has really taken a backseat, but whatever. Uh, let's Wait, why is that because of because he has too much power now to take in a backseat, or because the, he doesn't the, focus on it personally now? I'd say it's, it's many things. I don't know if Johnny Ive is a good interface design. I mean, like user interface designer. He's a good interface designer when it comes to physical products, when it comes to physical interfaces. But when it comes to you know how how something should look graphically on the screen, I don't. I I I, want, I gave him the highest of hopes. But it's been many years since that's happened, since he's taken the helm. And it hasn't... I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really happy with the direction that OS X is going. And, and I'm not really that enthused with whatever direction iOS is taking either. Because anything good, they ripped off of Android and they rebranded. And anything bad is still there. So, whatever. Because Android had a lot of features and iOS didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, Windows has a lot of features and things that you can add uh, that Mac OS doesn't. And it gives you the ability to customize things that Mac OS doesn't. And it's then true, if, but... Ma- if so Apple similar. wanted to take anything from Windows, which they have, they will. 
Yeah. And Windows tries to take the stability and performance from Mac OS. <laughs> anyway. <Nice>. Um, <laughs> thanks. And now we've made it in 32 minutes into the show, which is a nice power of 2, 2 to the 5th. Yep. And uh, we haven't talked about what the actual episode is about. And I don't have a theme to enter in this episode of mobile development with. I could use one of our old th- things from the NFL episode. They're not NFL. What was that sh- one? Oh, the, the, the NFL. <laughs> not NFL. The one that we use the NFL music for. <laughs> the uh, Patent Wars. There we go. That's what it was, Patent Wars. I, had to, I didn't really, until I hit it, I didn't know what the episode was. <laughs> the Patent Wars episode. Uh, we still have some of that we could do. Mobile Web Development. No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> it sounded like a cheesy 80s action movie. That's why you got Power Quest! How about a cheesy 60s uh, action movie? Okay. Yeah. Uh, more on mobile web development. So, two weeks ago, we had our first half of the show where we talked about old mobile development. Old mobile development isn't coming from like 1995 to 2001. Yeah. Or to actually, I think it was until 95 to like 05. And now. We have modern mobile development, which really, where you start with the modern age in mobile development, and this is not just because I'm an Apple fanboy, even though I don't like calling myself an Apple fanboy, uh, you have to start with the iPhone. You could start with the, with the BlackBerry, but eh, you start with the iPhone. That's true. When, when the iPhone came out, two things happened immediately. When the iPhone came out... There was an immediate shift in the way that people saw and what people expected out of websites. And the same thing happened when the iPad came out, that people changed immediately what, as soon as they saw it, as soon as they held it, like I'm holding the iPad now as it just hit the pop screen. Um, it already has a cracked screen, so it's fine. Uh, um, as soon as they saw the iPad and they used it and they went on the internet with it, they realized it's, the internet again had to change. So, the first thing that happened... We talk, I don't know how much we talked about this uh, two weeks ago. I don't think it was a lot. We didn't really focus on uh, Macromedia Flash, now Adobe Flash. We didn't that really was a, get there because we were focused on that, the cockamamie versions of the mobile web before, 2000, before the iPhone. At the, uh, that's true. And, you know, what, there, and that's, you know what? That's right. We didn't talk about Macromedia Adobe Flash because that wasn't mobile. And, yeah. But it was very much a part of the desktop web experience until, to that, until really 2009. 2007 was the shot. It was the shot that killed it, but it didn't actually die until around 2009. And the reason is that Steve Jobs emphatically said, "We will not support Macromedia Flash on the iPhone." Full stop. Period. That's <laughs> it. Drop. If he decided to do it, but say, "But just know it'll have lousy performance," it would still be around. Oh yeah. It would still be around. It would still be everywhere. And the and and Flash. I mean, it's funny. Apple didn't like Adobe slash Mac or Media Flash because it was a walled garden. Everything was proprietary. It was one box of stuff, and you really didn't have much insight into what was going on. And and Flash, whether it was owned by Mac or Media or Adobe, has various security issues and performance and stability issues. Which and, you don't want on an iPhone. Which you don't want on an embedded device, which is what an iPhone is. 
it, you know, you don't want it on a device with a really restricted set of things that it can do. The iPhone processor is not even a full x86 processor. It's an ARM processor. It's very restricted things that it can do, but it does them very well. And it's very optimized for the specific things that it does. Like video. It's very much optimized for video. That's why it has really smooth animation. That's why they're, they're even on the... It took until really... 2012, I would say, before uh, there was a, a rival Android phone that had at least the quality of graphics that the iPhone did. But now they do, of course. And uh, just like Windows has the same kind of graphical quality, they have pixel doubling, just like Mac has Retina stuff. It's but true, though. It's true. The, when the iPhone came out, there was a lot of demand for Flash websites. And when people, when you're talking to people about making a mobile website, uh, they wanted that same kind of Flash experience, especially if they had a Flash desktop website but the beautiful thing that i got to say when doing these pitches back then which was 10 years ago i can't believe that was it doesn't work it's not going to work there's nothing we can do (laughs) that's it and then the the client goes what do you mean it doesn't work it doesn't work and then you show them the the article that was written about steve jobs saying it's not going to work and then everybody takes a deep breath and you figure out what you're going to do and the web had to evolve so from 2007 to 2017, the gap between the mobile web and the desktop web is very small. There are obvious differences between what you can do on the different devices, especially when constrained by screen size. But if I have my desktop computer, the only real difference between the desktop web and the mobile web is the screen size these days. Mobile web browsers have got pretty good rendering at most things that you can expect from desktops. Phones are not as powerful as laptops, and laptops aren't as powerful as desktops still. But because everything has matured so well, uh, what you, all of the, the basic things that people tend to do, these even low-end laptops, phones and low-end laptops and tablets can all do that pretty well. I'm talking about just surfing the web. Sure. Which is, you know, when I, and I keep talking about surfing the web, mobile web, just web pages. The biggest advent that came out of the mobile the modern mobile web is responsive web design. Responsive web design is what, Tyler? That's when your uh, web page changes its layout and other things uh, responding to different size changes. Exactly. And that could mean you decrease the size of the window on your screen on your main computer. It could mean that you look at it on an iPad in portrait and then you turn it to landscape and it's a vastly different resolution. Or on your phone, where you need a very reduced experience. Everything stacks on top of each other on the phone. Exactly. And out of the mobile web, there have been a few user interface paradigms that have really come out. I historically complained about having your logo on the left and a left navigation, which was much more popular 10 years ago than it is now, or a horizontal tab navigation or drop-down menu. Everybody does that. You have your search box in the top right. You have your help bar on the top, the login button on the top right. You have your footer on the bottom. So very plain. That same kind of homogeneity came out of phones, especially with real apps, just as a quick tangent, by the way, on quicktangent.com, it just came up for renewal, uh, that the, the, the boilerplate app user interface paradigm, everybody thinks, we had this argument, Tyler, back in the room that days, uh, everybody thinks that's how you're supposed to design it, but it's not. It's just a guideline. It's just a, just a little push. If you started from nothing and you need to design an app, here's an idea. But you could also say that idea is not very good. I want to do my own thing. And as long as it retains usability, which is important, the most important thing, it, it'll still work. 
Yep. Which, unfortunately, the thing that I made for Room That, which I thought was beautiful, didn't work. That's another story. It was um, a process that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it was also the fact that I, I made a cube that wasn't really usable until uh, I, use, I tried using it. It wasn't really usable. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when you talk about the mobile web, and like I said, this is a gap. This is a gap that is slowly decreasing over time. You have to talk about things that you take out from the experience because of resource restriction, and then things that you can change because of differences in presentation. It is being happier with less, and. The, the reason why I say that is because when you work with mobile browsers, you will run into things that they just don't support because they run on a phone. It doesn't have the same type of support that a full computer does. Uh, Opera Mini, like we talked about last, uh, last episode, it's been around, for, I think Opera Mini's been around for almost 20 years, and unlike all the other major web browsers, it hasn't rebranded yet, so it's still called the same thing it was all those years ago. Uh, you know, Firefox used to be basically Netscape, which used to be basically Mozilla, and, uh, Anyway, I'm sure Opera Mini will rebrand itself when they come out with something that isn't. <laughs> they come out with the next thing that finally works with everything. Because as we we did mention last week, Opera Mini is a headache for uh, many developers. Right, but it is the most accessible web browser on the the widest array of devices. True, it, and that was something that was really true. I mean, I remember, like I said, when I had my Nokia phone that basically only had Snake on it. I could, when I was in high school, I could download Opera Mini. It was horrible, but it worked. And, uh, that's, and that's what you needed to just, just to bootstrap people onto the mobile web. Uh, Amazon Silk, which is the, uh, the, the, um, what is it, the Kindle Fire's web browser. I thought it was based on Opera Mini, but I guess it's not. Um, Amazon Silk has an issue where they tried to speed up the mobile web by proxying your requests and handling and rendering things in the cloud, sending the rendered content back down to your device. But the problem is, is that breaks SSL and that all, and other things on the web. Um, Silk relies on Amazon's EC2, that's Elastic Compute, Compute Cloud, that's, or ECC, I guess. But that would be error correction. That makes sense why they do EC2. Anyway, uh, Amazon's Elastic Compute Cloud to behave as an intelligent proxy. The concept is to use the power of EC2 to retrieve web pages and pre-render any objects or reduce their size in a way that lowers the burden placed on the device. All web connections from, and this is the Amazon Fire tablet, will connect directly to Amazon rather than the destination web page. Amazon will keep this connection between your Kindle Fire and EC2 open indefinitely while you're actively searching, surfing, reducing the latency and connection times to retrieve web pages. But this is... I, I don't know how. I don't know how much this. Well, anyway, let me. I'll Sounds keep like your cube idea. Like they had a really cool idea and stuff, but it's like in the end, you just kind of spend a lot of too much time on stuff. <laughs> uh, Could just made the thing really simple the first way and ex- save money. Well, it's, I, I, they may have. I, I don't know if they really thought this through, especially given request bottlenecks. You know this, Tyler. You can only make four requests to a given domain name at a time. If you, if your web page. That go that talks to a bunch of hosts normally. That, you know, talks to Google to download a font. It talks to some other thing for analytics. Talks to uh, many different hosts. Each time it talks to a new host, it can open up up to four connections to that domain name, which also includes subdomains. So if you have, you know, like assets.pneumonium.com can get four four requests, but www.pneumonium.com can get four additional requests. Interesting. But 
if all of your stuff goes to the same Amazon endpoint, then I think you may only get, and this is where I would ask Christian, you may only get four requests to Amazon at a time, which might actually slow down your experience on the whole. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, also, because of this, Amazon Silk me? logs all of your information for 30 days. All the URLs, IP addresses, and MAC addresses that will be used will be logged and retained for 30 days. I feel like all my, my phone and my computer log all my stuff anyway for longer than that. Well, I mean, if you live in the EU, they have to log all that stuff for years. I'm sure that we'll end up with retention. I, I may be the same in Canada. I'm sure we'll end up with some kind of data retention requirements for people's traffic, too. Because you never know what those pedophiles might be doing. But seriously, I mean, that's like that might be the reason that they use, which I'm not yeah, happy about. On the bright side, you know, someday we could be sitting with our grandchildren going, Look, Billy, here's the website that Google now is junk. That's <laughs> 23. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or, or or it's going to be, when I was a kid, nobody tracked our internet searches. <laughs> you could watch all the black midget porn you wanted and nobody cared. <laughs> oh, anyway. No. Um, yeah, but now we're entering a different world where everything is hyper-monitored and people ask to be for hyper-sanitized <laughs> environments, which is impossible. And plus, hypersanitization, I think, does lower your immune system in general, but that's another story. Oh, it's That's true. both a physical and a metaphorical comment. Don't let your children play in the dirt, otherwise they'll be allergic to everything. Right, but also the same goes for, like, you know, internet comments. It's true, but also it, someone who worked at a grocery store on the Upper West Side, good God, those children are allergic to everything. Are they? That's because they're in a hyper-sanitized environment, yeah, and they, your immune system develops after being exposed to germs. This guy came up to me and said, I need cookies from my daughter's class. Okay, cool. He said, oh yeah, everyone there's allergic to gluten and dairy and nuts. Oh man. Yeah, can I have the, the macadamia nut, the milk chocolate macadamia nut cookies, please? But everyone's allergic to gluten and chocolate and milk. This was daily, man. It's so bad. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, that's you know that that could be any that could be more than one thing. In that twenty could be, years, you drop peanut on the Upper West Side, half the box going down. Yeah, I, but you know, I, the the things that are causing these types of food allergies, and I've I've uh, a decent knowledge of food allergies. Um, the things that cause these aren't entirely known because it's very interesting how this really wasn't a problem. We're the last generation. I just turned thirty. You're 29. Like, I, we, we're the last generation of people that grew up with the not having to worry about what you bring into school as a food. And what then, do you mean? Be, like, even, even by the time we were in college, people, you couldn't just bring in birthday cupcakes into class. You can't bring in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because oh, yeah. someone might have a peanut allergy. But we escaped and also that. We found out that every single, everything that we ate like, growing up was just terrible for you. Right, but we were the last people in that kind of beautiful 20th century ignorance. And uh, everything, like, like even when I'm talking to some family, because many of my family are educators, and someone was like, oh, you know, they brought, in a, they brought in some peanut butter and jelly, and there's, like, a gasp around the table. I'm like, what? What's the, <laughs> what does that mean? And they're like, you know, peanut allergies. Oh, right! Peanut allergies, that is horrible. I don't know why. Wow. But I would also look to... The processing. That's the big that's the big thing. We've been eating peanut butter for what, two hundred years? We've been eating wheat for thousands of years and now in the last fifteen everyone's allergic. Something is wrong with what we're doing to these products. I hear that bread in Europe doesn't it, it it's not as bad on you and it's the way it's manufactured. I've heard Europeans come over here 
and they say they eat pasta every day and, and nothing, and then they eat our pasta once, and then like an hour later, they're tired, they have to lay down, and they feel bloated, and they said it's it, just right. the water, the wheat here, or the way we process it, whatever it it's, is. It's probably the wheat and the processing, and I, I just, I've been watching, whenever I, I get too happy, I like watching food documentaries to fix that, and... Uh, <laughs> And I watched a couple recently. Uh, one of them was, was, was like, what's up with wheat? I think it was. And I, my ex-girlfriend had issues with wheat. And so I, I'm, very, uh, I'm very aware to, uh, with, to, to that kind of sensitivity. But I, the, a lot of this, talking about gluten and talking about wheat, there's two things. And I know this really doesn't have to do about te- anything to do with technology other than the technology will solve this problem, hopefully. But... It's the mega manufacturing that we have, plus the fact that we've only been you, we've we've been spraying chemicals for decades on most of the Midwest to grow the same crop, which those crops should be you know like rotated and stuff. I don't know. I'm not a farmer. The point is, it's with the processing, and I don't know how we're going to fix that. I don't know how we're going to fix that because these companies only get bigger. Monsanto merged with Bayer. They're going to you know the 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 um. What's that pesticide? The uh, I can't, uh, no, yeah, no. It's in it's in right. glyphosate. The glyphosate people are now the same as the aspirin people. We all thought Bayer Weird. was the good guys. They, I thought they were the good guys too. Like, but who knows yes, now? I mean, they are a chemical attacks. company. Yeah. So anyway, done with Bayer. <laughs> Minus one for the week on that. Done's of list. Anyway, um. What were we talking about? Oh yeah, mobile mobile web development to get back to the uh, content of the show. Um, <laughs> right. So uh, so the Amazon Silk browser uh, basically does allows browser. a uh, sorry. Not the Silk Road browser. No, and I would not browse the Silk Road on the Silk browser since all of your traffic goes right to Amazon, and Amazon, as we mentioned, has connections direct to the com- CIA and Whole Foods. And they're also their direct competitor. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> um, here's here's an article from Security Week. Amazon Kindle browser exposed searches to man in the middle attacks. And uh, when users access Google.com, they are normally redirected to the HTTPS version automatically. But that didn't happen in Silk, which prevented the redirection. Experts pointed out that other Google domains, such as Google.ru and FR, worked properly and redirected to users to the SSL version of the site. The vulnerability affected Silk version 49 and was patched by version 51, but the fact that it still does this raises privacy concerns. That's true. So, but, you know, like, I, like we were saying, these are the things that you're going to have to put up with unless Amazon decides to pivot. You're going to have to put up with Opera Mini not liking half of the things you do and Amazon proxying your requests to their servers and then selling your data for more money to buy other food chains. Quick tangent, I forgot that .ru is a possible domain. It, there's so many good puns available with that. Like what? Like, I am a virgin .ru. Yeah, you know, wow. stuff like that. That's pretty good. I mean, that's not even great. That's just top of my head. Put okay, on the spot. I, I am drunk .ru. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. World of possibilities. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Uh, another popular mobile web browser nobody uses now is the Nokia browser for Symbian and uh, that actually had Symbian was Nokia's operating system and Nokia smartphones uh, did exist until until Microsoft bought them I think that's what happened like 2011 and then they and then Nokia 
became the phone brand for Windows to launch Windows Phone on, like Motorola became the phone brand for Google Chrome. Uh, anyway, um, how was I going to talk about Symbian? Other than just mentioning it, the first version in 2000 support, uh, 2002 was lacking support for those things that we talked about two weeks ago. Wireless application protocol and the wireless markup language. And they'll be flashlight. That's so, the stuff um, works. Uh, at the 2002, at 2006 World Wide Web Conference, Nokia announced it was releasing the source code for its port of WebKit back to the community. And then WebKit was then imported into the basis of Safari and Mobile Safari. Nice. Um, let's see. So they did some of the first dirty work. Exactly. And so did Conqueror, the web browser uh, on, on GNOME. The, the GNU desktop right. uh, thing. Conqueror with the K, K-H-T-M-L. That turned into WebKit, along with open source uh, contributions from Nokia and Apple. And Apple, whenever they do WebKit-level stuff, they always... They, I, I shouldn't say always, because I don't work there and I shouldn't speak in absolutes, but... Uh, they do tend to push back to the open source community when they make a- uh, updates to WebKit. They don't just keep it in Safari, which is nice. It's very nice. Um, I think everyone got tired of fighting over uh, web standards. I mean, people still fight over web standards. Don't get me wrong. Um, let's see. We've got the... Uh, you know, uh, One thing on the road to modern web... Or sorry, another thing I should say uh, is uh, the application cache. This is something that's been deprecated, I believe, in lieu of, was it service workers? What is this deprecated? Uh, oh, uh, manifests. Um, so there used to be something where uh, you could make a manifest, even though it's using the application cache. The ma- it's just a file that lists the things that uh, it should download when you go mobile. This way, it'll, it will, the stuff that it needs, like images, like your logo and the CSS file, and that stuff will remain cached when you're offline, so then you could still browse part of the website. Uh, and in the cache manifest file, you can add whole URLs. You can add HTML files or images or just a, a directory. Uh, a cache manifest file can include three sections, cache, network, and fallback. Uh, the uh, cache directive... Uh, describes the entries in the cache file. The files to be cached. The network is uh, files that require a ne- uh, resources, not just files that require a connection to a server. All requests to such resources bypass the cache, even if the user is offline. The wildcard character can be used once, and most sites need the wildcard. Fallback provides specific fallback pages a browser should see if a resource is inaccessible. The entry, each entry in this section lists two URI. The first is the resource, the second is the fallback. Both URI must be relative and from the same origin as the manifest file. Wild, wild cards may be used. So pretty sweet. Yeah, it's basically, it would go really well with, I guess, only Apache uses .ht access, but these uh, .app cache files really would work out. It's not used anymore because, like we said, there, there are the more modern uh, web manifest, which is the same principle, but it's more structured data. This is JSON instead of just an I and I, like not even it wasn't even an I and I structure. It was just uh, lines, just lines. So uh, web manifests, modern web manifests. It's funny because application cache it says deprecated, don't use web manifest, which is what you should be using if you're doing this stuff. Experimental technology. So we're caught in between both of them. Yep. And uh, 
Again, the web, mani- an a- web app manifest provides information about an application, such as a name, author, icon, and description in a JSON text file. And it just you, it's, uh, you can use the link tag. The app cache was actually an attribute on the HTML tag. This uses the, like the, H, like the HTML HTML tag. This is the link HTML tag. And link rel equals manifest, href equals manifest.json. And it just has a bunch of metadata. And uh, MIME types for the things that you want. And uh, related applications, platform call and web. So it's basically all the metadata that your web application needs in a structured format, which the app cache didn't have. And if you want to look up all the directives, just search for uh, Web Manifest. And if you want to look at the Mozilla MDN docs, add that in as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, service workers, also experimental technology. Uh, and where is the thing that I highlighted on here? You know, not having these highlights really, like, it really, because these web pages are really long. Does that bug your code? Oh, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Uh, the basic architecture of a service worker is the service no, one service worker URL is fetched and registered via the service worker container dot register. If successful, the service worker is executed in a service worker global scope. This is basically a special kind of worker context running off the main script execution thread with no DOM access. Three, the service worker is now ready to process events. Four. Installation of the worker is attempted when the service worker controlled pages are accessed subsequently. An install event is always the first one sent to a service worker that can be used to start the process of populating an indexed DB and caching site assets. This is really the same kind of procedure as installing a native or Firefox OS app, colon, making everything available for use offline. When the uninstall handler completes, I'm guessing that's an event that you can use, uh, the service worker is considered installed. Next is activation. There's an unactivate handler. And then there's uh, the service worker will n- now control pages, but only those opened after the register directive is successful. You know, this honestly sounds like um, a framework that nobody uses called Durandal, where it does the same kind of like installation, activation, registration lifecycle. That's funny. Um, Let's see, a document that starts with or without a service worker and, maintain, and maintains that for its lifetime. Oh, I see. The service worker will now control pages, but only those opened after the register directive is successful, i.e. a document starts life with or without a service worker and maintains that for its lifetime. So documents will have to be reloaded to, be auto, uh, to actually be controlled. Fun time to cash it. Uh, let's see. Um... There's also, of course, responsive, modern responsive uh, JavaScript applications that have mobile optimizations built in, like Angular and Angular 2 and, and React and React Fiber. Uh, and I guess, I guess I could kind of leave it at that because the most amount of work that you really do when making, when making a mobile site in that is either making mobile-specific components or changing the presentation of your page because the screen size has changed. Simple enough. React Native has an extra piece where you can make native components to turn your web app into a native app, which is something that I'm currently working on. And uh, you have to... React Native takes away all of the things that you didn't know actually existed that the web browser was doing for you, like processing CSS. But React doesn't like CSS anyway. React Native 
has you write native components to match the web components that are supplied by the browser, like for a camera input. But if there's... Oh, I didn't write this down. Uh, repo search. There's a... Uh, there's a plugin. No, not a plugin. Sorry. There's a... There's a uh, uh, there's a website that, like you can search packages for, uh, for Linux, you can search for uh, packages for React. It's called react.parts slash native. And if you go to react.parts or react.parts slash native, you can search for a bunch of React native components. React native material design, React native image picker, uh, React native barcode scanner. Because if you wrote a web component for that, like let's say you do input type equals file or input type equals camera, you'll have to write something that bridges that gap on the phone when you're actually in native mode. There is also a, a third format of uh, handling mobile stuff. Um, I know there's plenty of, of websites out there that will uh, conditionalize the, the web page you receive based on whether or not you have a mobile browser going on. So, uh, for instance, for half of like, but that's responsive pages, web design. Yeah, but if you're serving up an entirely different set of HTML, it's kind of beating responsive. You know, it's not. I don't. Well, a responsive is in my mind. It's changing the way out of the HTML and the CSS, but it's not changing the physical HTML. If you give it a, a physical different HTML page because you're on a on a browser, on a mobile browser, I would different. I would disagree under a more liberal definition of responsive web design. Well, the idea of a responsive web design is that the website reacts to changes in the screen size. If the reaction is sending you a different HTML document, that I would still consider responsive. Okay. But the entire there, website is reactive, depending on what, or independent of whether or not the front end itself, the, the raw HTML, is reactive. Right. Exactly. But the other thing is, it is bad practice generally to output two different documents for the same URL. If you're if you do that, you should redirect people to a m dot or mobile dot subdomain because a lot of times HTML without any sort of dynamic variables. If you just go to like pneumonium dot com, that will stay cached somewhere, whether it's on your computer or there's an ISP level cache. There are other level caches before it actually tries to go all the way back to pneumonium dot com to fetch the document again. So I'm saying if the only thing that determines whether which page you get is the user agent that your browser sends out that says it's a mobile browser versus if, if it's a desktop browser. Uh, if that's the only thing that sh that decides the completely different documents that it serves up, there's a chance that the wrong document might get included in the ISP cache, which would be really bad. So Quite interesting. Yeah, so the best practice is, like I said... Changes to the same document in in presentation is fine. Completely different documents with the same you exactly the same URL. Bad practice. The more you know. The more you know. Um, okay, let's uh, let's talk about mobile emulators really quickly. If you're developing something for the mobile web, you do need to test it out. The first one that comes to mind is the iOS simulator. Comes on standard with Xcode. If you have a Macintosh that uses Xcode, quite standard. Uh, the only issue is, on my Macintosh that does not have the newest Mac OS, it won't let me download a simulator for the newest iOS, which is ridiculous. It's not just ridiculous, it's ridiculous. So, I, You must uh, update your software. Exactly. And the fact that TurboTax has also yelled at me to update my software really means that I probably should. 
But I don't want to have to reconfigure everything. So I'm, I'm, They're going to make us do push-ups first before we even get to update if we take too long. Exactly. I have another <laughs> system ready to go, but it's just the amount of config that has to happen is, it is really what... It is really agreement. <laughs> yeah, I know. You um, push-ups. <laughs> Um, okay, mobile emulators. So the first one after Xcode slash iOS sim, there's mobiletest.me. Test your websites in smartphone and tablet emulators. And it even says select a device to start, like the iPhone 5. Wow, Tyler, this is up to date. <laughs> I didn't know about that one. I didn't personally use it. You can use, oh, we can use the HTC One. That also looks like it's five years older. Than, I was hoping the, you or Christian had tried one of those. I personally only know browser stack. Okay. Um, well, like I said, the thing, I guess emulators, emulators, if they give you a full view of, of what it actually is, might be good. But my whole thing on the virtualization emulating, like I said before, is unless you're virtualizing the actual environment 100%, it's not going to be 100% analogous to what you develop. That's what BrowserStack does. Right. They have what was the thing that we used at Heartbeat? Um, Litmus? That also has they have a data center and, like, uh, VNC install in all the computers, and then you could actually just use a live session of Internet Explorer, whatever version you want, or whatever, you know, browser you want. And they have that all virtualized so you can really get in there. But I don't know exactly what... When they say emulation, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if it's the same quality emulation as, like, the iOS sim that is pretty much the same as what you're going to get on the phone because Apple makes both of them. I don't know if mobiletest.me's emulator for the HTC One is actually going to be really indicative of what of what it would display in real life, uh, in situ. Sure. It's a new Latin expression I've heard. <laughs> I think that's Latin. Um, anyway, so I there's mobiletest.me. There's another one, uh, browser stack. That okay, Tyler, this looks much more up to bit, up to date than mobile test. If I'm not mistaken, they have real iPhones sitting around. Uh, it actually is beyond emulation. I think. It's been a couple of years since I used it, but that got 99.9% of things accurate. I was only able to have to make one bug occur on an actual iOS device that didn't occur in their emulator. And what was that? Oh, I can't remember. Okay. I, I think it was something with some extra infinite scroll I didn't want it, but I can't be sure. It was a long time ago. Gotcha. How do you do like pinch and zoom gestures on the uh, phone? I don't remember. I guess it's probably the same as how you would do it on the iOS sim. Anyway, yeah, they say real device cloud. No need to build or maintain expensive device labs. Instant browser-based access, or I guess you put you could put into a queue. Not in, in, they should have instant asterisk. Instant browser-based access. Because like with Lintmiss, you know, they had instant browser-based access, and that was waiting 20 minutes for, for you to be done in the queue. Anyway. Instant BBA. Um, browser... <laughs> BBA, browser-based access, to the latest mobile devices like iPad, iPhone, Nexus, Samsung Gallery, Windows Phone, whenever you need them. Sounds so dirty. They've configured Android SDKs and iOS Xcode so you don't have to. One click on it. Okay, I'm not going to read that like it's real ad copy because they're not paying us. Yeah. Um, there's <laughs> mobilemoxie.com. Uh, I haven't used that one. Uh, Nor have this, I. It's another kind of... SEO tools, technical tools, marketing tools, mobile marketing gallery. Let's see what happens. Browse through our large gallery of mobile marketing campaigns. Contribute your favorite campaigns to the gallery by sending screenshots to, and they give the address. Um, oh, man. Let's, let's take a look. Let's roll the dice. AAA's QR code 
in a print magazine to build subscriptions to the roadside service program. That's an example of a mobile marketing gallery for MobileMoxie.com. Excellent. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, Direct TV. Are these jokes? Direct TV. This is like a picture with a cell phone. Uh, TV interstitial on United Airlines flights on the personal TVs when nothing is ordered or paid for. SMS call get uh, to action to get Direct TV. I don't know <laughs> what this is. You're reading too into it. What is MobileMoxie.com? I didn't even add this. Create exceptional mobile experiences for your customers wherever they are. Oh, okay. This actually... I don't know if this is emulation. I don't think so. I think this is just... I think this just analyzes the structure. Look, I really should have reviewed this before getting on the air, but I'm sorry. (laughs) It looks like the structure of your site and analyzes it and and analyzes how, quote-unquote, good it is uh, based on its, quote-unquote, algorithms. Right, I've seen that before, actually. Yeah, they're not the only people that do that, but because their mobile is in the name, I guess they're higher ranking in search results, which is why they have SEO tools. Uh, social markup validator, search simulator, deep linking markup validator, site analyzer, redirect generator, device emulator. Let's click on device emulator. And then select up the two devices, iPhone 7 with, and uh, what phone do you have? The uh, Samsung... S7. S7 Galaxy Edge. F6 Edge Plus... I don't have... Oh, I don't have the S7, Tyler. Ooh, they're falling off. You are off to analyze. And let's take a look. All right, well, it looks like it's pulling up two live views. The iPhone 7 and Samsung Galaxy S6 Edge Plus side by side. How are they doing this? They have actually downloaded pneumonium.com right there. Uh, But they've... I've framed it in. Okay. I don't like this. <laughs> Sorry. It looks like... It, it's very interesting because they actually have different enough presentation. But why is this like an... I, like, why, like it renders it to HTML that then you can edit and inspect. I don't, I don't like that. That doesn't seem emulated enough. If you're looking to emulate your website and test it, don't use MobileMoxie. <laughs> exactly. Um... And then, of course, the, uh, the, the tried-and-true method, most tried, most true method of testing your stuff on mobile is just using m- multiple phones. Yes, and for that, you outsource to a QA company. Or you have a giant locker. When I worked at Condé Nast, we had a giant locker of phones, and uh, that's what it was. And every time a new thing came out, we got to go buy one, which is cool. That's fun. That is fun. But you never actually get to use it like you think you're going to use it when you buy it. I'm like, oh, man, I just got this cool thing. I'm going to do all this stuff, but it's not mine, so I can't actually really use it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and that's honestly using many phones or having many phones virtualized and using a virtual machine to view the, fo- to view the stuff on your phone is really what I would recommend because that's the way that you can really see what it's doing. I have every version of Windows virtualized on my computer with every version of Internet Explorer that each one can run only because I have, in my experience, seen issues where people are using... The, the same version of Internet Explorer with different versions of Windows creating different problems. So fun. It is fun. Thanks and it's Internet also Explorer. only Internet Explorer. Very rarely have I seen that kind of issue with Chrome or Firefox. Thanks, IE. Yeah, exactly. So, But that's, you know, in the past. That's why they have Edge. <laughs> so. All right. Let's, uh, let's take a break. And... Uh, 
do one of those things that we haven't done in a really long time, which is an ad. I think. Hello? Say, friends, do you live in New York City? Well, if you do, Nomonium has a beautiful new product for you. It's called Where Am I? Your five-borough compass navigator to help you get anywhere from Staten Island to the Bronx. Simply go to www.whereami.nyc and enable location services on your mobile device to find the neighborhood, borough, and three closest subway stops to you, wherever you are. No ads, no tracking, only geospatial brilliance. That's Where Am I? Brought to you by Pneumonium. Pneumonium, reinventing media daily. I haven't done one of those reads in a while. <laughs> um, and since we talk so much about it, we might as well. Um, let's see. Let's go back up. Uh, okay. Well, now that we had a nice break, uh, how about we talk about what really bugs your code? Tyler, take it away. You know what really bugs my code? What bugs your code, Tyler? Debugging mobile browsers. It's Why like, is that? It's like element inspectors are bad enough, but if you're doing mobile, hardly half of those even offer decent help. And even the best ones are still funky with tiny breaks. You can't switch from desktop to mobile without refreshing the page. I haven't even brought up React Mobile yet, good lord. And out of the fact that I've only ever heard of two browsers offering real native debugging, and you have, my friend, put a bug in my code. So mobile browser inspection, go bug yourself. And that's been Tyler Dinner with You Know What Really Bugs My Code. That was pretty good. Okay, now, hold on. Here's the thing. You did a really good job with that, but I, I kind of, you had a really certain, you had a certain kind of tone when reading that. And if you don't mind, let me reread it in the tone that I had in my head. Is that okay? Please, absolutely. Okay. I have a real problem with debugging mobile internet browsers. It's like element inspectors, they're bad enough. But even if you're doing mobile, nearly half of those don't even offer decent help. Even in the, you know what, I'm getting caught between Larry David and Bernie Sanders. (laughs) That's the problem. Because, you know, Bernie Sanders has the... And Larry David is more of the... You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you can't, if my element inspectors have had enough. But Bernie Sanders has the, you can't, you can't if, how, how could you want to switch from desktop to mobile browser without refreshing the page? Anyway. I feel like the tone of this speech is more Bernie. Yeah? He's not, you can't. He's not <laughs> because defending when, himself against someone when, for accidentally being an asshole like Larry David. <laughs> when, when you have a mobile internet browser, <laughs> you will not be able to do all of the things that you wanted to do on the desktop. That's why. Even with element inspectors, there's no way that you could really aspire to the things that you wanted to aspire to without using a real computer. <laughs> i got to work on those impressions. Uh, that was nice, though. Refreshing. I, I, really, I really like that segment. Now, let's talk about something that is, uh, people say is killing the mobile web, and that's called AMP, or Advanced Mobile Pages by Google. And if you go to ampproject.org, you'll see an AMP logo, but not Google's. It's very interesting. Um, <laughs> yes. But actually, the phone, the hero image that they have, if you look in the URL bar, says google.com slash AMP. And that is exactly where your traffic will go if you turn your website into an AMP website. The AMP project is an open source initiative 
aiming to make the... Uh, I can't. I am losing it. The AMP project is an open-source initiative aiming to make the web better for all. The project enables the creation of websites and ads that are consistently fast, beautiful... Google's saying it's beautiful. And high-performing <laughs> across devices and distribution platforms. Uh, yeah. So... They say AMP pages are built with three core components. AMP HTML, which is HTML with some restrictions for reliable performance. AMP JS, the library that ensures fast rendering of H AMP HTML. And the AMP cache that can be used to serve cached HTML pages, which probably uses the HTML5 manifest that we talked about. Can we intro AMP real quick? And just preface with, if you're unfamiliar with what an AMP page is, if you are on a mobile browser and you see a Google search result and it has a little lightning bolt next to the page, you click ah, on that yes. and it loads extremely fast, that's a Google AMP page. And you have to, uh, you have a very limited resource to make these pages. You have to abide ex- uh, explicitly by Google's rules, but your page will load fast as hell on a mobile browser, even in a really bad connection situation. Yes. It looks like Google and Facebook are doing their jobs in wrecking the Internet because Facebook is just taking a giant poop on web development and Google is just taking a giant poop on web surfing. Well, to be fair, an AMP page is not specifically intended to replace the mobile web in its entirety. It's only for a small niche uh, of pages, mostly news sources and pages and stuff like that. Oh yeah, it's for the article. It's not for it, you're not allowed to play video on a on an AMP page, for example. There's super limited things you can do. You can't customize a page. It's it's like it's like a WordPress 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 blog. It's it's function to do one thing only, um, and that is yeah. But WordPress blogs can have video. Yeah, and, and can, so many things can, have video these days. I guess it's. You can in- hijack it, a WordPress blog and do whatever and customize it. But, like, if you make it on WordPress.com instead of WordPress.org, like, you can only do a couple of things. Um, but that might have been a bad analogy. But it's super limited, and it's only intended really for articles. Interesting. Uh, there's one JavaScript file hosted on Google servers that turns those web components from spans into working elements. No other JavaScript is allowed. All your styles must be in a style element instead of an external file, and there's a limit on what you can do with those styles. It's like writing an email. Yeah, yeah, it's super limiting. The AMP cache, the source of most confusion, and even downright enmity. This is what's behind the fact that uh, when you launch an AMP result from Google search, you don't go to another website. You see Google's cache copy of the page instead of the original. So here's my question. What happens to analytics? Granted, if you're using Google. Google Analytics, I'm sure they can filter it through. What? They go through Google. It's genius. Google makes way more advertising revenue off of it because everyone right. goes through Google. But make- if you're not using Google Analytics, if you're using Adobe DTM, if you're using some kind of other entity tagging, what happens? All yep. your traffic, it's not, these pages aren't being accessed by, it's not, I'm, I'm going to say it's not going to pass through all of the data from your phone, like the user agent and your, geogra- and your location and all that stuff. It's going to go through Google. Yeah. If you want a faster, if you want the fastest article mobile website available, you make an AMP page. And you go but you know what the problem is? Google. Is that then they will start giving demerits, just like they're giving demerits to HTTP web pages rather than SSL. They'll give demerits to uh, to pages that are not AMP. True. And you know what? That is their right as a company that makes a search engine. Unfortunately, I'm not happy that they do it. Or if they, if they will do it, you know they are they are doing it for SSL. Vertical right integration. Now. When your search engine makes your browser, 
Right? No, and I, I had the same thing about Internet Explorer. When the EU was complaining that, oh, why is Internet Explorer the, the default on Microsoft Windows? Because it's Microsoft Internet Explorer. If you want to have a default opera browser, make your own damn operating system. It's like, it's like the 30 Rock episode. If the people that makes the food that gives you diarrhea also makes the diarrhea medicine. Oh, that's good. It's vertical integration. Yeah. It's dangerous. Wait, then they might be inclined to oh, connect the dots. No. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's true. And vertical integration is exactly why Microsoft and McDonald's are two American failures. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, I don't know. Microsoft's getting more vertical. They're making computers again. uh, Whatever. I mean, I'm I'm starting to trust Satya that he's making good decisions. I don't use You're Windows. Need, I don't yeah, like I using Windows. Use Windows Pro. has not fixed their problem with text. Start with text before you talk about creating. When you can ro- have a document that looks that doesn't looks like the text is sawing through your eyeballs. <laughs> Start with that. Anyway, because even Microsoft Word on Mac OS looks better. The text looks better than it does on Windows because of the text. Fix the text rendering first before you want to get talk about creating things. <laughs> anyway. Um, announced in 2015, duly open source and integrated into Google's mobile search, Google has pitched AMP as a way to speed the mobile web. You said that already. As a new framework <laughs> built entirely out of existing web technologies. Uh, ah, here we go. The second thing I was trying to... This, this is one of those other web pages that uh, I had annotated, but then the annotations went away. Uh wow. So far, AMP actually sounds appealing. Except that, hilariously, to create an AMP page, you have to load a, yes, wait for it, JavaScript file from Google. Pinboard founder Mesh... Wow. M-A-C-I-E-J? Message? Seglowski? Yes, it is mine. Polish. Uh, already recreated the Google AMP demo page without the Google AMP JavaScript, and, unsurprisingly, it's actually faster than Google's version. Oh, duh. Take that, Tyler. Ah! What? If you can make a super stripped-down page that adheres to their stuff but doesn't have to hit their API first? It doesn't adhere to their stuff. That's what. That's his point. I don't get it. He recreated the Google AMP uh, demo page, uh, AMP static.html. Uh, let me see if I can send it to oh, you. I understand. That makes sense. He, he can make this, the static file just fine, but Google makes uh. their stuff a special way so that it's, you know... It's gonna li- it's gonna limit what other people can do. You must use this one. You must use this tag. You must use this tag so that you don't have the freedom to use other tags like that. I would but assume. you'll also have to strip out your analytics data. Instead, you can peek at a small subset of the data that Google gathers. That's the AMP analytics deal in a nutshell. Why would anyone strip out their own analytics? Home- excuse me. Excuse me. Homegrown features like interactive maps or photo galleries and create pages that won't even be shown with their own URL or branding. To get in Google's top stories carousel, of course, and all the cool publications are doing it. And that's really a problem. And also, more people will read your article. If your article loads instantly, then people have your attention span because they just read that title and they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to read it now. Let me ask you this. Also, if if they're in the bathroom trying to read on the toilet and the service is bad, not that uncommon, and your article loads instantly because it's an amp page, they're going to be inclined to read that thing. (laughs) <laughs> uh, 
Okay, let me ask you this. What happens uh, when Breitbart does it? That'll be a great way to get to the top of the search results. How do you do it? They're Even better. They're a, major, they're a major news publication. Of course their articles are amp. Exactly. exactly. I. Uh, but this is poop money. I don't know. They did actually call it poop sherbet. Uh, <laughs> who did that? Ah, uh, I had it. What is that I article? It's sherbet. in the notes. Asking like, text files. Not, shit uh, sherbet. Yeah. It's, it's Tyler cursing. Oh, sorry. Yeah, this is uh, ASCII by Jason Scott. Oh, that's what this is. Okay, uh, I don't. Oh, I forgot the context of this. Uh, oh, whatever. The point. The point is to, that we're not. Oh, it's that blindingly trusting. It's that blindingly trusting these frameworks is bad, and people did it with Facebook's uh, mobile stuff, and they do it with the Graph API and all these stuff because they're they. The culture in Silicon Valley is so vacuous and incestual that they just want to eat up everything that uh, these companies spit out. That's a dirty and, uh, sentence. Let's see. People aren't just eating Facebook's shit sherbet of overnight upgrades, lack of guarantees and standards, of enveloping tendrils of web standard breaking. They're shoveling it down. They're grabbing two crazy, crazy handfuls of Facebook and just replace Facebook with Google. Every minute of every day when they're not forced to walk down a hallway or look up from their phones or iPads or laptops or consoles. They're grabbing buckets of Facebook and finding ways to shove it down with one hand while pawing around for a second bucket. Be- people, sorry to pop, people have bought the F in. Remember that week when Facebook decided which of your friends would show up on your, on your what's new thing? That was great. Remember a week or two when they changed the behavior of the enter key in text boxes? Awesome. How about that nosebleed you got when they changed the privacy information standard six different ways or try, uh, trying them on like new Malibu Stacy hats as an audience ranging from barely literate mouth breathers to computer scientists got to experience one true rogering of personal information? And there we all are. We wondered if there was some sort of app we could install on Facebook to give us a third bucket to keep that sherbet coming. Mm. And the same thing the same thing is happening at Google. Or with Google. Pawing around for another bucket. That sounds like Winnie the Pooh getting more honey. The old saw is that people don't understand that Facebook doesn't consider the users their customers. They consider the advertisers their customers, the users are the product. That's what they sell to the advertisers. Duh. And again, anything that you use for free, you're the product that's being sold to the advertisers who are paying for you. What do you guys so sell? So anything Facebook? that will get you to make those clicks, sorry? What do you guys sell, Facebook? Basic Yeah, they're hum- you're, you're a human resource. Uh, Millions uh, let's of see. basic girls. Make no mistake, this is true, but it implies that Facebook takes some sort of benign, let's keep humming along and uses big herd of moves to our advantage. But it doesn't. Facebook actively and constantly changes up the game, making things more intrusive. Couldn't give less of a shit about your identity, your worth, your culture, your knowledge, your humanity, or even the cohesive maintenance of what makes you, you. Facebook couldn't care less about you than if it was born into your lower intestine and ripped out of you in the middle of the night. I use Facebook every day, but because of its disgust and and distaste for borders and stratum, I've gotten back in touch with some very important folks in my past and use Facebook to get information about a variety of people and figures that are relevant to my work in history and research. I can do this before... Okay, I'm not going to go on reading this, but it's actually... It's a nice article, but... But then again, they're saying Facebook doesn't care about you. Like, 
So what are they expecting? Right. And Facebook Google to doesn't do? care about you either. Google doesn't care about the internet. They care about their stuff serving quicker so they can force more ads to in front of your eyeballs or sell more of your habits and data. That's it. Yeah. And anything that they can do to make that happen quicker or faster or in a new way so they can increase monetization, Google is an ad company. And the way that they make money by selling ads is through search. That's yeah. it. Rather than saying, we're going to put your ad on a TV show, we're going to put your ad on a podcast, we're going to put your ad in search results. That's their business. Yeah, it works and pretty it's good. It's a really good business and it's really profitable. But as we said before, online advertising numbers don't really add up on paper. And a lot of that funniness goes through Google. So between Google and Apple's new analytics platforms, it may actually represent a dramatic shift in how web surfing habits are monitored and aggregated online. It'll be really interesting to see what happens. Hmm. It will. And I think our last story, as we uh, hit the 90-minute mark, almost hit the 90-minute mark, is about WordPress. You mentioned WordPress earlier. I spent 10 years making WordPress websites. Uh, The company behind WordPress, which I didn't realize it wasn't just called WordPress, it's called Automatic, is closing its gorgeous San Francisco offices because too many homeless poop people are pooping outside. <laughs> and there is a poop map Thanks, of San Francisco Giuliani. if you want to correct me on that. Um, have you seen that, by the way? What? There, I'm not kidding. Poop map of San Francisco. No. It's a Google map. It's called uh, Human Wasteland. Go to mochimachine.org slash wasteland. And it is a customized Google map of every piece of public poop in the city has been marked and kept up to date. And there was a giant turd in the San Francisco Union Square mm-hmm. and the uh, Soma District and the uh, just north of in the uh, Little Saigon District has a lot of poop. Wow. Interesting. Anyway, that's your shit, Sherbert. Uh, no, all right. Uh, no, so Automatic is closing its doors, the fancy San Francisco WordPress office, because its employees never show up. Uh, That's basically it. Uh, Automatic, the technology company that owns WordPress.com, has a beautiful office in a converted San Francisco warehouse with soaring ceilings, a library, and a custom-made barn door. If you like the space, you're free to move in. The office at 140 Hawthorne went on the market after CEO Matt Mullenweg came to the realization that not enough employees used it. As he explained on the Stack Overflow podcast earlier this year. <clears throat> yeah, we got an office there about six or seven years ago. It was a pretty good lease, but nobody goes in it. Five people go in it. It's about 15,000 square feet, and they got like 3,000 square feet each. You know, there's many gaming tables. These are our people. <laughs> Automatic has always given its 550 employees the chance of working remotely. The San Francisco space was an optional co-working space, spokesman Mark Armstrong said. The company maintains similar offices in Cape Town, South Africa, and Portland, Maine, and gives, and gives employees a $250 a month stipend if they want to use commercial co-working offices elsewhere. And if they'd rather work at Starbucks, Automatic will automatically pay for the coffee. That's pretty fancy. But what if they wanted good coffee? No, I'm sorry. Oh... <laughs> While Automatic feverly embraces remote working, other companies have gotten cold feet, including the one that I work for. Uh, In 2013, Marissa Meyer, then the CEO of Yahoo, famously famously ended the company telecommuting policy, telling employees in a memo from HR that the best results, quote, we need to be working side by side. For the best results, we need to be working side by side. Wow. 
More recently, IBM, a pioneer of remote working, told thousands of U.S. employees they'll need to begin working in offices. The goal is to make the company's workforce more nimble and similar to Yahoo's aim to foster creativity through working shoulder to shoulder. Which probably also means uh, open floor plan. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is counterintuitive to productivity. I've worked in an office where they wanted everyone is so inspired by Facebook because they had an open floor plan office, even though I don't think they do anymore, and open floor plan offices don't work. Don't let facts stop you. Uh, but I worked in one, and what happens is when you have two people in a whole office that are on, a phone, on the phone all day, you, you can't get anything done. You can't even think. These people just, like, blabbing on, and they have all the, the notifications go on in their computer, and then the older people always have everything. All, everything makes noise, and everything mo- forwards the phone, and that makes noise. So someone gets a Skype call, and it rings on their computer, then it starts ringing on their phone, and everything beeps. Multiplied by 20 people, it's a lot. It's a very big noise footprint. Sounds like so a, first. Sounds sorry. Like pr- sounds like the press floor. Yeah, exactly. So first, you try to get good at working in noisy environments because that'll be the best thing. If you can tune stuff out, you'll be fine. But the second thing is, uh, try to minimize your noise footprint. Most millennials have their phone on vibrate these days, which I appreciate because we all get a ton of notifications. But it also works when you're in a setting where a bunch of people get a ton of notifications. You can't have something, you know, beeping at you all, all day times the amount of people in the office. Also, if your iPhone flashlight flashes when you get a text message, you need to just turn that off uh, right now. I've seen that, and I've also seen it's that on Android, and I saw someone... worse if you have it, that on. Yeah. yeah, it's bad. That's how you lose respect from the community at large very, very quickly. Yeah. But, you know, just like the people that use the strobe bike lights, they only think about themselves. They don't think about you. <laughs> Can you see me? <laughs> yeah, as they're, as they're wobbling all over the road, texting on their phone, how many laws can you break at a time? Anyway, okay. I think as it's the stroke of midnight, as we have done another 90-minute show, I think, Tyler, it's time to uh, put an end to this week's pull request. So, do you approve I this week's pull do. request? Fantastic. Then let's all hit merge. And we'll see you next week right here on Polar Quest. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Polar Quest do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. This week's theme music provided by Wolfpack. Visit them at VULFPECK.com.